This morning, our scripture reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 22a. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But they said, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Yesterday marked the 30th anniversary of the falling of the Berlin Wall. It stood for decades as a symbol of the division between people, specifically the division between East and West Germany, but a symbol of the division between broader groups of people as well. Tomorrow, we celebrate Remembrance Day, where we remember all of the divisions that tore the world apart in the great conflict a generation and plus ago. We think about all of the sacrifices that were made. We think about all of the tension and the pain and the suffering because of the divisions between different people. And both of these remembrances, both of these anniversaries, both of these days remind us that the human story is underlined with conflict. This is what we're talking about this month here at Elevation in our series, Old School Bible Fights. Because the Bible paints a far from harmonious picture of what it means to live by faith. And in this week's story, we find a nation at conflict with its leader. We find people in conflict with God. 
All month long, we're turning our attention to some biblical relationships where conflict arose in hopes that we can learn how to handle our own circumstances better. And the first character that we meet in this story is Samuel. Samuel's story is fascinating. It almost didn't happen. His story actually begins with, with that of his mother who was unable to give birth, and she called out to God, begging and pleading that she'd be able to have a child. When God responded and heard her prayer, she made a commitment that she would dedicate this child of hers to serve the Lord. And so when he was weaned, she brought him to the temple and not only dedicated him like we do up here from time to time on Sunday mornings, but dedicated him as in left him at the temple to be raised by the priests in his household. He would be literally dedicated to God for his life. In chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, we read that each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with his people. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord, we read, under Eli, who was the priest. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. But all of a sudden, one night, Samuel hears a voice calling. And eventually, over the course of numerous repetitions, Eli realizes that God is actually speaking to this young boy. In a day when the word of the Lord was rare, Samuel heard from God. And he began to lead the nation accordingly. First Samuel 7 verse 15 says that Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. But as our reading begins, Samuel, as Samuel grows old, he starts to think about his successors. I'm getting old. Who's going to take over after me? So Samuel appointed his sons as Israel's leaders, but his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. The irony is that this is actually the same thing Samuel would have witnessed as he grew up in Eli's house, where the priest's own sons were rebellious and were ultimately rejected by God. But nonetheless, he appoints his sons to take over after him. Judging by the way Samuel's sons led, they had no business being leaders in the first place, which is a reminder, just as a little aside this morning, that parents have to be careful when it comes to putting expectations on their children. We may want our children to follow a certain path, But if they're not cut out for it, we should stop putting the pressure on. So all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. Now, anyone who's old doesn't need to be told they're old, right? About a month ago, uh, I went out uh, with Owen. He was studying. He was home from, from university studying. And we went out for bubble tea. And we walked into the place. And I looked at him. I said, I am 20 years older than anyone else in this place right now. Like, you don't have to be told you're old. And there are some of you who are 60 or 70 saying, you're, you're not old. Like, you don't know the half of it. You know, just wait until. You don't have to be told. So they come to him and they tell him that he's old. Age is a funny thing. I mean, who better to lead than someone with a lifetime of experience, right? Like, in a sense, he is, he's learned so much. He's already made all his mistakes. He's learned from them. There's so much wisdom that's been gleaned. Who better to lead? And yet, ageism is the most socially normalized of any prejudice. This idea that because of someone's age, whether old or young, they don't have as much to offer or they're not as valuable. My wife works with seniors, as some of you uh, do as well, and, and she recognizes, sometimes she'll, t- come and she'll sit around the dinner table and she'll say that, you know, there's, there's this man and, you know, he used to be a professor at the university or this woman founded this company or this, this man used to be the president of this, or, this organization, and she talks about them and now, and now they, can't, they can't feed themselves properly or, and now they're struggling, you know, with memory and these different things. It's like, it's incredible the, the gifts that people have, but, but sometimes when they reach a certain age, they don't have a place to offer those gifts anymore. 
Well, that's kind of what's happening with Samuel here. Uh, The people said to him, you are old. And then they go on, your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now given his son's failure, the request for a king seems reasonable enough. Samuel thought that his sons would be good to take over. They're like, you made a bad decision here. We want someone else to lead us instead. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. What a great reminder of the value in seeking God in our disagreements. And so it begs the question, do we? When something displeases us, when someone offends us, when someone says something that's disagreeable to us, what is the first thing we do? First thing Samuel does is he turns to God in prayer. The next time someone suggests something that doesn't sit well with you, pray. And in fact, I mean, it's a good reminder that the next time anything, pray, right? Turn your attention to God. Invite God's input. Ask Him to speak into this situation. How else do we make decisions? If we don't pause and turn to God in the midst of our displeasure, then we end up making decisions based on how we feel. See, the Israelites were envious of the nations around them. They wanted to be like them, and and that was driving their decision-making. They were also annoyed with Samuel. They were disappointed in him for appointing his sons as leaders. And again, this emotional reaction drove their response. But think about a time you made a poor decision based on emotion. I'm sure it's happened more than once this week, for example. Right? We let our emotions, when we let our emotions drive us, we ended up making decisions. Maybe it was an impulse purchase because you were in a bad mood. Maybe someone hurt you, and so you ended up spouting off a hurtful comment back at them. Maybe fear, the emotion of fear overwhelmed you, and you missed out on an opportunity because you were concerned about the results. Maybe because you have uh, disappointment or sadness or grief or, or anger or any imagine, other emotion Maybe you compromise morally. You see, when when we allow our emotions to drive our actions, we end up making mistakes. Now, on the one hand, ignoring our emotions is a mistake, of course, but so is letting them drive our decision-making. While the elders' frustrations with Samuel led them to lower their standards for their nation's calling and demand a king just like the other nations, Samuel's frustrations with the elders drew him closer to God, an encouragement for us to do the same thing. I want to pick up the story in chapter 8, verses 7 to 8. The Lord told him, listen to all the people of saying to you, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so are they doing to you. Interesting. For the second week in a row, the main character in our story has to make an important choice in the face of rejection. Last week, for those of you who weren't here, weren't able to listen to the podcast, we talked about Cain and Abel, the first siblings born to Adam and Eve, and we heard the, about this rivalry they had when they brought their sacrifice to God. Abel's offering was, sac- was accepted, Cain's was not. He was, his was rejected, and we, di- we discussed last week that we don't know exactly what the circumstances around that rejection were, but as the story goes, his rejection led to anger. And God intervenes, and he calls him on his anger, and he says, you can't let this anger get the best of you. But he does let him get his emotions get the best of him, and the anger results in a murder. I was reading a book this week, and the author talked about a lesson that he learned from a conversation with someone about something called rejection therapy. 
I don't know if you've ever heard of this before. I hadn't. So he goes on to describe, he, he was, uh, this person mentioned this phrase. And he says, well, what is rejection therapy? And the, the guy, it was two people. They were like had co-founded a company together. And they said, you know what? When we were growing up, we were outcasts. We didn't fit in. We were rejected all the time. We didn't, we didn't, get, uh, we didn't have luck with the ladies. We didn't have luck with peer groups. We didn't do well. We just faced rejection constantly when we were young. And when we started this business, we realized that all of that rejection, it, it, it risked us not being willing to to put ourselves out there. And so we had to find a way, if we were going to make this company thrive, to be able to continue to take those risks of being rejected. So we started this practice where every month we have a competition on the last day of the month where we have to see who can be rejected the most in a 24-hour period. And so they go out and they spend this 24 hours trying to get rejected. They're like, it's amazing. It's like I'll go into a sub shop and say, hey, can I make my sub? They're like, no. <clears throat> and he goes up to a police officer, hey, can I shoot your gun? No. <clears throat> yes. And he says, oh, I ask, he's every beautiful person I see, I go up and ask her if she'll go out on a date with me. And they're just like, what's the matter with you? Like, no. But he says, the truth is, this is just an aside, he said, I'm going to have a date almost every weekend. You know, like he asked so many people on that one day that a few of them say yes, right? So anyways, just strategy for some of you who are struggling. Um, so this idea of like, let's, let's just get so used to rejection so that when we are rejected, it's like, whatever, just rolls off our back, right? So, I mean, that's one strategy. Now, of course, rejection isn't always fun, right? The idea of building up an immunity rejection, that's one thing, but actually going through uh, the experience of rejection is, is difficult. You know, I was thinking about this and how, in many ways, uh, if I were to come up with a, with a word for the year 2018, I would probably choose rejection for the word in my life that year. Uh, for those who aren't aware, our community walked through uh, a difficult season wrestling with uh, the intersection of same-sex attraction and Christian faith, and, and the posture that we ended up coming to as a community ended up seeing a number of people leave our church, and uh, good people, friends, long-time people who are part of our community. And let me tell you, it weighed heavy and hard on me. And last fall, about September, I was, man, after all summer long, dozens of people kind of sending me the emails, making the phone calls. I was not feeling so good. I called up some buddies of mine who passed, other pastors, and I said, guys, I need to vent. Let's get together for dinner. So we met at a pickle barrel uh, at Yorkdale, and, we, and I just like unloaded on them about this rejection that I was feeling. And it was funny because one of my friends, he said, okay, just pause for a second there, Brandon. He said, like, let's go around and talk about our other experiences of rejection. You know, people who have left the church with some kind of a, a, in some kind of a negative light. And, and the three friends that were there, they went around and told their stories. And at the end, he said, okay, so between the three of us, over all of our years of leadership, we, came, we were able to come up with four people who left in a negative light. He said, you've had like 50 in the last three months. So that's tough. That's a lot of rejection, you know. But one of the things that I had to keep reminding that it wasn't actually about me. And when we feel a sense of rejection, often we, we personalize it, we internalize it, we make it about ourselves, when it's not often about ourselves. If rejection can tempt us to turn on others, like Cain turned on Abel, because that happens, right? If we feel someone rejecting us, we can turn on them so easily. But if rejection can, to help us, can cause us to turn on others, it can also tempt us to turn on ourselves. That the way that we're rejected by someone else, that it actually says something about who we are about our character, about who I am as a person. But Henry Nouwen gives us this advice, and this is really important stuff. He says, self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Self-rejection. 
Like, whatever another person says, that's one thing. But what we receive and say to ourselves, that's a totally another thing. And we need to be very cautious that we don't listen to that voice. The thing that God says here in 1 Samuel 8 is that ultimately it was God that was being rejected. Samuel's like, they've rejected me. God's like, no, no, no. They're rejecting me. It's like he's saying, the rejection of you is a reflection of how they've rejected me. Now listen to them, he says. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Now, first of all, listen to them? This doesn't sound like something God would say. I mean, basically, they want to do something that's totally unreasonable, that's basically shoving God out of the picture, and God's like, listen to them. But here's the thing, and this is important. This is so important, whether this is like your first time ever sitting in a church or whether you've been sitting in church for your entire life. God has never been interested in forcing his way. From the Garden of Eden, through the cross of Jesus, up to the present in our own daily decisions of faith, God presents us with an opportunity to choose his will or to choose our own. And God appears ready to bear the consequences of that rejection, whatever the consequences might be. God is not forcing us to choose him instead of choosing a king. He allows us to choose. He doesn't compel people to trust in him, but he allows us to choose who we will serve. The choice is an important part of the story. Jamie Smith writes, we can't not be lovers. We can't not be desiring some kingdom. The question is not whether we love, but what we love. We're going to be setting our hearts on something. We're going to be chasing after something. Something is going to be the thing that matters the most to us. The question is what or who is that going to be? At the end of the day, the nation of Israel wanted to be like all of the nations around them. They didn't want to follow God's lead. They wanted a flesh and blood king. So Samuel unloads a laundry list of warnings. Well, he's going to do this and he's going to do that. Describing a system where citizens of the kingdom would bend their backs to support the king and his court and his armies. He ends his little tirade with this. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen and the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now part of the story I can see in this, con- see in this reading here is someone who is in deep relationship with God and a group of people who, while aware of God, don't seem to know him. There's a conflict there. Samuel has been seeking God since he was a child. He's been listening to God's voice since he was young. And these people are just going about their business. They're like, yeah, we don't care about your opinion. And I think that there's some wisdom here in listening to the voices of people who are really in tune with God. Can we handle the rebuke of someone who might be a little further down the path than us? Can we heed, the, will we heed their advice? Someone whose faith might be stronger than ours, or will we just push on ahead with our ambitions? Now, we have to be cautious. Of course, there are lots of people, including people with decades and years of experience who make mistakes and steer us wrong. I mean, that's, we have to be cautious. But are we willing to listen to those who are a little further down the path than us? But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. It strikes me how demanding the people were. We want a king. It's like they weren't even paying attention. Actually, the Bible says they refused to listen to Samuel. They weren't actually even listening to him. 
There's this passage in chapter 3 of this book of the Bible. It says, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. He let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. Well, these words of his fell, and they fell hard like scattered seed falling on rocky places. When Samuel heard them, when Samuel heard them, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them. Give them a king. The argument between Samuel and the elders of Israel, it might have been short-lived, but the consequences reverberated for generations to come. So what happened next? Well, the next chapter introduces us to Saul, Israel's first king. As handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. So Saul starts off strong. Everyone's like, wow, this guy's great. Good looking, tall, wins his first battle. This is great. He's going to be a great leader. But his second battle, the new king made a mistake. You see, Samuel wasn't around, and Saul apparently wanted to do something. He wanted to offer God something, and so he, he goes and makes this offering on his own, something only that, a, that only a priest was allowed to do. Samuel comes up. He rebukes him. He says, no, listen, you can't do this. He said, the fact that you even did this, that you thought you could take this kind of control, uh, God is now actually looking for a new king. Well, a short while later, in another battle, Saul ignored Samuel's instructions. He keeps some of the plunder for himself. And we pick up the narrative. This is chapter 15, verse 21 to 23. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. The decision to reject God in favor of an earthly king spelled the beginning of the end of Israel's role as the unique community through which God would bless the world. Century after century, one flawed king after another led Israel in a downward spiral that ended in their domination by foreign empires and the loss of their once promised land. But the good news, of course, is that God is never, ever going to give up on his people. A week ago, Friday, uh, I was doing the carpool back and forth to youth, and my daughter, Sophie, who's 16, and her cousin, who is also part of our church community, invited a bunch of their friends to come on out to youth with them. And it was very entertaining, because uh, these, these people do not attend church, they don't go to youth groups, and so when I picked them up at the end of the night, it was a very interesting drive home. They were all coming back to our place to hang out, uh, to hear what they thought of this kind of church experience, this youth thing. Um, I don't even know if they knew I was a pastor or what the deal was, but they did not hold anything back. So they were talking about it, and like, what was that, and who was that, and what was going on there. And uh, when we got back to our house, I was in the kitchen and Sophie and her friend was there. And I said to her friend, I was like, you know what? I said, this kind of actually reminds me a lot of the first time Melissa invited me out to a youth group. And she was like, what? What do you mean? I said, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't go to a youth group. And she invited me out one Wednesday night or whatever it was. And, and I can remember like it just feeling awkward and I didn't know what was going on. And, and they're like, she was like, well, what? Well, like, what happened? I was like, well, I remember, I don't remember all of it, but one thing I remember is they made us all sit in a circle and pray. 
And I was like, what's going on here? Like everyone had to say something they wanted to pray for. And there was this girl and she was praying for her apple blossoms because she didn't want them to freeze. And I was like, who prays for, prays for apple blossoms? And this is so weird. And me and my buddies were like looking at each other when everyone's praying. We're like, what the heck is going on here? Why are they praying for apples? And we were laughing about it. And I was thinking about, yeah, just uh, remembering back to those days and remembering that, that I was invited to come out to a youth group, but I, I heard something there. And what I heard was that there's another way to live your life. I heard that there's another, another way to follow, another way to spend the love that we have, the devotion that we have. It was kind of like what Jesus said when he began teaching. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent. Believe the good news. Which is so ironic. Like over a thousand years earlier, the people said, we don't want a king. And what does the first thing Jesus say? The kingdom of God is here. It's back. <laughs> you said no. God says yes. This kingdom looked really different though, didn't it? What did it involve? What was this invitation? What was this new way of living? Jamie Smith describes it this way. To align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. We are being called to say yes to the kingdom of God and no to the king like every other nation has. I told you God doesn't give up. Even after he was rejected, God was still determined to be king. God was still after the hearts of his people. For God so loved the world, you've heard this one before, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the giving wasn't an empty giving either. In a scene with eerie similarities to 1 Samuel chapter 8, the elders of Israel once again choose an earthly king over God's rule in their lives. Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest friends, He's turned over to the authorities. He's dragged before the Roman leader, Pilate. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, they replied. Finally, Pilate handed him over them to be crucified. First, they rejected God as king under Samuel's leadership. Then they denied that he was their king and nailed his son to a cross. Well, that's not the end of the story either. Peter's preaching a sermon to a bunch of people wondering what the heck is going on. A couple of months after Jesus resurrection, he says to them, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. It's not the end of the story. There's more to it. And so this story this morning and the story of Jesus, it's a story about the conflict of wills between one another, between God's will and our own. And each day we have to make the same decision, God or king, God or Saul, Jesus or Caesar. But part of the Part of the challenge here, and I just share this last thing here this morning, is that I don't think any of us would choose a king, right? So the analogy kind of breaks down. 
Because who here would really say, I want a king to rule over me? No one would say that. Right? We wouldn't say that. We live in a liberal democracy. We wouldn't want a king to rule over us. But we all have our own king that we look at in the mirror every morning. Right? Now, the choice today isn't between God and king. It's between God and ourselves. Give me myself. I want to follow my path. I want to lead my life. I want to do what I want. And God says, okay, the choice is yours. But just like the Israelites, and just like the Jews in the first century, will come up hungry at the end of the day. Close with this line from Frederick Buechner. He writes, the kingdom of God is what we all of us hunger for above all other things. Even when we don't know its name or realize that it's what we're starving to death for. And I invite you to stand. Lord, I'm just acknowledged. There's not one of us who doesn't care about what happens with our lives. We all want our lives to work, to succeed, to thrive. And the battle that we have is between these competing narratives of which kingdom we want to be a part of. Do we want to be a part of your kingdom, or do we want to be part of kind of our own kingdom, this kingdom of this world around us? And, and the choice is ours, and we're grateful for that. But God, I pray this morning that your spirit would lead us and push us in the direction of choosing you. That instead of shouting, we have no king but Caesar, we would shout out our allegiance to you. We have no king but Jesus. There's no way for us to follow but your way. There's no truth for us to know but your truth. There's no life for us to live except your life. Remind us of that this morning. Call us onward. In Jesus' name, amen.